0: Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will talk about uh, the fourth uh, chunk of part four. I guess this will be part four of my review of Old Town Folks by Harry Beecher Stowe. I'll be specifically looking at chapters 28 through 36, um, which focuses mostly on Tina, Harry, and Horace's uh, experiences uh, being educated in um, in, a, in a boarding school called uh, Cloudland. But we start out with the the aftermath of of the Thanksgiving dinner, particularly the reputation of Ellery Davenport being uplifted in in the town. Like he he tells many stories, and we're and makes a good impression on the people of of town, so this is what he does for everyone actually. He tends to make a good impression on people and that disarms them for his more nefarious um, goals in a way he 's kind of like the Aaron Burr character in in the minister 's Wooing I suppose i don 't know if there's a parallel in uncle Tom 's Cabin. The focus of that book is is really somewhere else, but um Quote, this incident gave Ellery Davenport a widespread popularity in the circles of Old Town. My grandmother was predisposed to look at him with complacency as a grandson of President Edwards, although he took apparently a freakish delight in shocking the respectable prejudices and disappointing the reasonable expectations of people in this regard. In fact, Ellery Davenport was one of those talkers who delighted to maintain the contrary of every position started and who enjoy the bustle and confusion when they thus make in every circle, End quote. Now, you might, well, first of all, I want to say seeing him as a grandson of President Edwards is also Aaron Burr, right? So he is almost like an Aaron Burr stand and if you think of it that way. But um, this idea of, of him being the contrarian in a way uh, that may, in this day and age, I think that's not as approved, looked upon kindly, as to be like the contrary point of view. But when you read a lot of 19th century works like this, you get the sense that like part of conversation was this kind of like debate, like a low stakes debate about things, like the back and forth between. Deborah and and the others about like France it doesn't lead to animosity it's like almost like if you don't have an opinion about this that they almost think lesser of you I don't know like it's obviously political tensions in this period of history were high but in social circles it it seems this is just the lubricant of of conversation Um, and he's really good at that that's the point which I don't know. It's a little bit counterintuitive because we know how much people fall over politics and fall over religion in these days. But nevertheless, like within social circles, I think this back and forth was was sort of an essential thing. And he was very very uh, good at that. But ultimately, he agrees to uh, to help uh, to help uh, find mismanipulables like some lost family members or sister or something in France. So he he's a diplomat, so he's going to go to France, and he promises to help out. And this is going to be a plot point that comes up a little bit um, later. Ellery here is really becoming, like, a respected member of the community. That's the main point here. Then we get a long chapter, Chapter 29, called My Grandmother's Blue Book. Um, and wow, what an aside. It's... First of all, it's like 30 pages almost, or 25 pages. It's, it's a pretty significant chunk of the whole length of the book. I think like 5% of the whole book is this chapter, my grandmother's blue book. Um, and specifically, uh, this is Horace's grandmother, of course. And this is Stowe going on about theology again. And she's already done it at a few times in this book. And of course, she did it in Ministers Wooing. And you could just tell she can't let this drop. She has to, again, talk about this like religious reformation uh, that's going along in the Second Great Awakening, where the Calvinists get sort of dethroned with this New Lights uh, traditions, which do preside up for a more evangelical, individualist type of religion. Now, of course, this kind of parallels her whole view on education. Which is, of course, going to be centered on the individual, not didactic, not law, not this idea that all kids are evil, right? Like, it's. I mean, I, I think that's what partially what she's responding to, and that's what you see in like Asphyxia, and some other characters. Is this idea that children are by original sin evil, and the best you can do is contain their passions and desires, and, and and teach them the Bible and teach them to fear God and then maybe they'll turn out okay, right? But ultimately, it's up to God if they are saved or not. Well, of course, later Christians revise that view and give a lot more autonomy to the individual in securing their salvation through seeking out Christ. Um, that seems to be where Stowe's loyalties are, um, but it's a, it's a big deal that she spends a lot of time on, and I'm not entirely sure why she feels the need to do that. If you were to actually pull out this chapter 29 and just read it as a separate essay, I, I mean, I, I could see the value in doing that. Um, now, the blue book is particularly Dr. Bellamy's True, uh, true Religion Revealed. This is a real book. You can find it on archive.org or on Google Books if you want to read it. And she gives here a summary of this text uh, over the course of like 20 pages or so. Now, I don't know much about this guy, Joseph Bellamy. He wrote a lot of books, but apparently he never really left. Um, like Bethlehem, Connecticut, which he was just like a pastor for his whole life from when he was like 18 until he died. Um, so it's like 50 years. He's just in Bethlehem, uh, Connecticut, which is a town, I guess, probably like old town, not much different. Um, so he's in that circle of Edwards and Hopkins, who we met so much in um, the minister's wooing. Um, and of course, he's focused on education, and he's just one of these new light uh, uh, thinkers. Now, just to sum up here, uh, once again, if you've been listening along, it keeps coming up, but th- the new lights tended to be more against the established. Traditions of the church, the established Puritan theocracy in in New England, Um, or also if they're responding to the Church of England, of course, these same movements affected those Episcopal churches, tended to be more uh, for independence. And again, some of them were against like childhood baptism and and embraced adult baptism, you know, the Baptists, of of course, are that group. Um, But generally, it's an idea that. I guess it's represented by the revival movement of the of the New Lights and the First and Second Great Awakening. Just this idea that you have more control over your salvation than the strict Calvinists would have you believe. Um, and, anyways, a lot of that is laid out here, but it's a super long chapter, which might be fun to to dig into a little bit more. Um, See, one interesting idea he she explores here is this idea that the Puritans, as a theology although breaking free of England are actually one that's more conducive to submission and monarchy. I would say theocracy, of course, but uh, somehow suggesting it doesn't have a place in a democratic America. Certainly, that's a, that's kind of a fascinating idea that we need a, a new kind of religion that's not going to be bound by the same old world philosophies and ideas. like... I could, see, when you look at like American history, you say, well, the Puritans came and they kind of brought religious freedom and democracy. Those kind of old, not right ideas about American history. But this idea that there's something kind of liberatory because they were fighting against the Church of England, fighting against the king for autonomous churches. There's something kind of democratic and liberatory about that, right? But um, there, it's. I, I doubt very much that the Calvinists really were thinking in terms of true democracy the way we understand it. Right? That would have to that would require a religious change, and maybe I'm not just Christian enough to like get my head around all these ideas, but you know that, that's basic my understanding. But I'm not a specialist on on religion. Um, but anyways, let's move on. So, so chapter thirty. This chapter is sort of a break. It doesn't happen halfway through. It happens more like. Three-fifths through the book but it is sort of a break where we move from childhood to adulthood and in chapter 30 we begin to be grown up people uh, the heart of this is really Tina's growing up and that's a big that's dangerous um, because Tina's growing up to be hot uh, quote Tina was now verging towards maturity she was in Just that delicious period in which a girl had all the privileges and graces of childhood, its freedom of movement and actions, brightening with a sort of mysterious aura by the coming dawn of womanhood, and everything indicated that she was to be one of this powerful class of womankind. Can one analyze the charm such a woman possesses? I have a theory that in all cases there's a certain amount of genius in it, genius which does not declare itself in literature, but in social life, and which devotes itself to pleasing the other artists devote themselves to painting or to poetry." End quote. Um, And other people are going to mention this as we move on. Like, um, yeah, eventually the the adults start to have this conversation too. It's like we need to protect her from – we need to give her a direction until she's fully grown up because – or she's going to fall for the wrong guy or we just need to protect her from – I mean, the implication here is that you can't trust the boys at all, right? So we'll send her to a school where she can be protected by – um, by an institution uh, So that's the plan The plan they have is We're sending Harry and Horace Off to this cloud Cloud home So we can um, We can send Tina to There's a whole chapter here It said what should we do with Tina um, And that becomes a solution Send her off to cloud land With the boys That's a It's a co-ed school But there's like different dorms And she'll be taken care of by women who will oversee her, and we won't have to deal with her maturation yet, right? It's like we're going to invent, like, this adolescence for Tina to make sure she doesn't have to, like, confront her, uh, you know, just so she won't be a sexual object until later. It's like the town trying to protect her. It's kind of cute, actually. Um, But, of course, it's good for Tina because Tina is super smart, and so this is going to be her opportunity to get an education for her to earn an education through her 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 effort. Um and anyways that's what happens. So we get several chapters exploring school life at Cloudland. Um Mr. Rositer is the is like the head teacher of the school. He's actually related to Medable, so that's another reason he was uh, Tina's being sent there, but he's the the head of the academy. Um we also have um uh, another woman, I can't even read my handwriting here, uh-huh. Mrs. Titcombe, who is like in charge of the girls. Now, once again, like I said before, in this this debate about education, it's almost always two people. There's always two sides to this debate. Um, every time it's brought up, there's two sides to it. And here we get it too, in that Miss Titcombe is more rule-based, more traditional in her education, We're dealing with the girls who gotta protect the girls. She's a little bit more like Miss Asphyxia, but not, not not that bad, but she's closer in that direction. And Miss Roseter is more of a modern Lockean kind of educator. Um, that Roseter family is all good people, it seems. Um, so we meet them. Um, we also learn about the minister in, um, in Cloudland. And he is a man named Mr. Avery. And he very much is also an advocate of, of reason and, and modern enlightenment thinking in education and in religion. He has a child named Esther, who is going to be the love interest of, of Harry eventually, and they're going to get, get married. Um, so we have all everything in place really for a modern world. We have modern thinkers, modern philosophies, modern religion, modern education. We have kids who are open-minded to these things with, with parents that, or caretakers at least, who are open-minded. We have here literally a ge- they can break free of old town and get an education in this nurturing environment. Yeah, we have this Miss Titcombe who seems a little bit of a of, of a hard ass and not entirely what would be ideal, but I think Stowe is being realistic that change comes slowly and institutions can't change on a dime. Um, and yeah. It's good stuff. Um, mostly, this is about. There's a, there's a lot, a few chapters here exploring this. Um, now, eventually, we get uh, to a discussion of like religious revivals and Avery's participation in uh, religious revivals. There's a chapter, chapter thirty-five, literally called "The Revival of Religion." So we, see, in fact, in this chapter, the maturation of our main characters is paralleled directly with the maturing of religion, right, of earning like an independence. And I guess the maturing of the nation, too, because we got three, American religion, American as a political democracy, and these young people being um, growing up. And uh, like religious revivals, are part of this, this maturation of uh, and independence of American religion. Uh, and I, I, there's a whole chapter that kind of stretches out that, that idea. Now, the reading for today, um, and I'm going to be quick here because there's um, I'll have more to say in the next episode as we close up this novel. But in the chapter called After the Reval, which is chapter 36, the last one I want to look at today, Um, Tina's sexuality is again brought up as something dangerous and a little bit um, worrisome Um, it's actually kind of amazing that this is written when it was which makes me sometimes think that she Stowe is a little more feminist than than we maybe usually assume a little more modern in her feminism anyways she's obviously somewhat tangentially connected to women's rights. She's mostly known for her participation in abolitionism, of course. But these reform movements did group together. Um, For instance, listen to this. Girls like Tina are often censored as flirts, most unjustly so too. Their unawakened nature gives them no power over perceiving what must be the full extent of their influence over the opposite sex. Tina was warmly social. She was enthusiastic and self-confident and had precisely that spirit which should fit a woman to be priestess or prophetess, to inspire or to lead, end quote. Just a few lines there, but so much, to, uh, so much uh, to say about it. On the one hand, we have her, you know, it's clearly stated here, Tina can do anything she wants. I know that's kind of a cliche, but it's, it's, a, it's a good cliche, right? People should have the opportunity to pursue any future they want, regardless of their background or their, their gender or whatever, right? And so that's a very progressive idea on its own. But if you read closely here, what she's saying is like girls can also be like forward and nice to men without that being necessarily interpreted in, in a sexual way, right? Uh, and that's still something we're struggling with, right? Where men misread cues from, from women and then build up resentment towards women because they feel they're, they're their interest in these women are not being reciprocated, right? It's kind of like incel logic here. It's like, oh, I was nice to you, and you, you said something nice to me. Therefore, you know, you must be interested in me, right? And and I think Stowe's calling that out here. In 1869, saying like, Tina, you know, is just a, a fairly outgoing woman, warmly social, right? That doesn't make her a flirt, and you'd be wrong to interpret it that way. But other people seem to do, including the man she's going to marry. We still have the problem that she is going to marry the jerk, right? And the jerk dies, and eventually she marries the, the good guy, Horace, the one who gets basically friend-zoned in the story. So that's maybe unavoidable in this type of story. Um, I mean, I, I think... Part of me almost wants Elry uh, Davenport not to be that bad. Can it just can the badness just be in Horace's mind? Obviously, it's not because he does some really horrible things in the book. But that also would make a slightly better story for me. That Horace, our narrator, actually is wrong in his kind of anger towards Davenport for basically stealing who he who he considered his girl. But in this passage, there is a the potential for a whole other sort of story um, if still wanted to go that way but she didn't ultimately nevertheless i think there's there's a radicalism here in this idea that women can express themselves how they want without you know or should be able to express themselves how they want without that being misinterpreted by the other sex and that just generally women are have the full capacity to to pursue any career Uh, and they're actually listed here Uh, she seemed she excited the higher faculties. Poetry, idolatry, bliss, dreams seemed to be her atmosphere. She had a power of quick sympathy, of genuine, spontaneous outburst, that gave to her looks and words almost the value of a caress so that she was an unconscious deceiver and seemed always to say more for the individual than she really meant. All men are lovers of sunshine and spring gales, but they are no ones in particular. And he who seeks to hold them to one's heart finds his mistake, end quote. It's like she's got this superpower that makes her a really awesome person, but it's going to lead to trouble and that men, are go- especially young men, are going like, to misinterpret that again and again. Um, there's a little bit more here, though, as the passage goes on, where Stowe tells us, Tina has not learned the modern way of girls who count their lovers and offers as an Indian does his scalps and parade the number of their victims before their acquaintances. Quote. Now, I think that's a little much. I think, I, I, I think she's overstating her case a little bit, I, like notches on the bedpost or something, you know, a body count. She's saying, like, like, Tina did not yet keep a body count of her, of her many conquests yet. She, she was not one of the modern girls i i don't think there were many women that would fit that description at, the, at this time but maybe more than we think I, obviously people are always more sexually active than we like to remember them to be in previous times right we haven't invented anything in this generation and you know that's just a fact uh but certainly there were different standards of of sexual morality at the time but but still here's a little anxious about that but the big point in this chapter is I you know a large part of it is Horace falling entirely for Tina another part of it is is Tina's own like power which she's acquired simply through being sort of awesome and and I think there's there's a potential here for us to to see the, the seeds of uh, I think an important feminist argument about women c- can be hot in public without like, that necessarily being a, a come hither uh, to, to men. We're still fighting this struggle, I think. Anyways, uh, that's, that'll be it for now. Um, in the next episode, I'll finish up my thoughts about Harry Peter Stowe and Old Town folks. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. I think I'll have quite a lot to say as we wrap up this book. There, it's really plot-heavy. The last hundred pages. There's a lot that happens, and a few um, old seeds get uh, bear, bear fruit, and we, you know, and we we have some legitimate like surprises at the end of the book. So uh, I look forward to talking about that with you at the end. So, um, anyways, that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.